James, what do you think the best theme song ever is? Oh, if we're talking sports, I know we're talking Hava Nagila. Ah, the classic horror tune uh, brought to you at every, any hockey arena on the old organ. I know we can't be there in person, but uh, we got the next best thing. We've got our own intro music, new intro music. A uh, special thanks to Kobe Lipovich, uh, wears number eight for the uh, Toronto Bar Mitzvah Club. <laughs> Um, he's dropping them those dimes and, and sinking those shots uh, from key to key as he brings us his version of Havana Gila. I think it goes up between, somewhere between the uh, Harry Belafonte and the Bob Dylan version <laughs> of each. Uh, thank you so much, Kobe, a member of uh, our listener community and the CJN community for providing us with uh, this wonderful rendition of a classic song. Shalom Aleichem, sports fans. You're uh, here with the Menchwarmers, the podcast about Jews and sports. My name is Gabe. I'm Jamie, and welcome back to another uh, fascinating and funny discussion about the world of Jews and sports. Uh, we've got a great episode for you. We have an interview coming up soon with Andrew Moranis, uh, the writer of several books, including Games of Deception, a book about the 1936 Summer Olympics. Not the best Olympics for our people. No, not the best Olympics for our people. It was held in Berlin in the heart of Nazi Germany at the time, but a fascinating book. Um, also the author of a recent uh, book, Singled Out, about Glenn Burke, the first gay Major League Baseball player. Um, and we're going to get to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first, there is a uh, big anti-Semitic Jewish sports controversy that needs to, needs to be discussed right now. And we got to we gotta make with the yucks about it. Well, I don't know about make with the yucks. It's pretty it's pretty bad, but we'll... No, it's a bad one. Okay, we'll, d- we'll poke some fun. We... We had a man do an, do a big anti-Semitism on Twitch. Yeah, so let's let's go through the facts. Um, My, Myers Leonard, who's like a you know probably like eight nine year NBA vet at this point, plays with Miami Heat. Although you know he's bench player, glorified cheerleader kind of guy. For some reason, he also streams video games. I guess that's sort of like a pretty happening side job for lots of yeah. I think a lot athletes. of the like like fringe yeah. NBA players seem to. Well, I think they play a lot of video games because they're twenty five so. years old and. They seem to do so on Twitch because you can make some money. People watch it. You yeah, know, he it, had sponsors for it, which I guess is something we'll discuss. Anyways, he, uh, I guess, got killed playing Call of Duty, and he used the K-word we're going we're gonna to go with. He didn't use it at anyone Jewish, per se, but he just... Used it as a general insult. Yeah. The K-word, we're, we're going to decline to say it on air. It's, uh, it's Enrique Hernandez's nickname. If you read yeah, it. if you want to, if you want to look it up, you can. One thing I found very, I want to say right off the bat, I found about this discourse is a lot of the American media, especially a lot of Jewish American media, talked about that it's not a very common insult for Jews, and therefore he must have known, you know, that it that it was a particular word. He must be familiar with it, right? But I actually, having watched School Ties, I believe it's probably the most common insult to Jews. So I didn't understand that part of the. The discourse, I think it's a fairly common, you know, word that's thrown around. Well, that was... Do you agree? I, I think so. Part of his apology was to say, I didn't know what the word meant at the time. My ignorance about its history and how offensive it is to the Jewish community is absolutely non-excuse. And I was just wrong. So there aren't that many slurs for Jews that I think are in common use. Like, I guess Yid and Heb, 
neither of which I think are are as offensive. Like there was Heat Magazine. And, and you know, Yid in, in Tottenham, as you could hear our previous episode with uh, Dave Goss talking yeah, about it. They, they also have a, have a non-negative con- context. And then there's some older things like Sheeny, which I feel like, I have, I, like I've only heard in school ties. Like, I don't That's think, also big in school yeah. ties. So like, I don't think anyone's ever called someone a, like a, well, sorry, not ever, but recently no one Matt is swearing Damon drops on that bomb yeah. a whole lot. And that's it. In the Maybe movie. At in the like movie. A, no disrespect to movie. Matt Damon. May, I think I, yes. Outside of your, you know, Connecticut prep school football team, probably not one you hear all that often. Right. And so then the K word again, I think is known. And I think is, you know, a thing that's used against Jews in an anti-Semitic way. I, I, I don't have personal experience with it. I don't think, but I do think he knew what it meant. I mean, I think it's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, of course he knew what Obviously, it meant. Why would you say something that you don't know what it means? You, it, it's sort of ridiculous to say, I didn't know what it means, and then not provide further explanation about that. Like, if, it just, I mean, if he said, like, oh, I thought it meant uh, uncool or lame, it's like, well, that's it? You didn't know its origin or anything like that? I mean, people had a similar uh, discussion, I guess, with the, uh, let's say, the other F word not that long ago, and people were saying, well, I didn't mean it to be homophobic. I just meant it as a... As a slur, and it's like, but you knew, you knew <laughs> it's from a, a homophobic. Slur. You know, it's from a homophobic place, right? Uh, you know, keeping with the now deceased Kobe Bryant's use of that f word on the bench. I mean, Myers was uh, fined fifty thousand dollars and suspended for a week from the uh, from the Miami Heat. It doesn't really matter; she wasn't playing anyways. But uh, you know, I guess that's. How do you feel about that uh, penalty? What do you think? I mean, I think that there it seems that there's sort of a boilerplate standard penalty for any sort of did a bad thing in the NBA. Right. You know, you look at a lot of the comparables. It's hard to find someone who has been suspended for more than that and find more than that. You know, even for something like domestic violence or drug use or, you know, any any of those equally serious but more violent crimes. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, uh, you know, repeated recreational drug use is very <laughs> frowned upon in the NBA. So depending on your belief about like, you know, Robert Swift doing too much heroin, like he got a worse suspension than Myers Leonard did. Sure. That was quite a while. That, that was uh, some time ago, I guess. I mean, you know, it is interesting to see these suspensions for saying something that was like, clearly offensive you know this wasn't in a game but obviously players say things in the heat of the moment that are not necessarily as bad not necessarily racial slurs but you know i, I don't know i think they did i think a, a week suspension and fifty thousand dollars seems about right i don't know that he deserves to never play again in the nba on the other hand i mean uh you know mickey aronson who owns the heat is jewish he plays for miami like there's a lot of Jewish fans. And and one thing that I think strikes me as different from this one, which might give some, you know, fewer fewer problems for him or a less might warrant a less severe suspension is that it's not like he, you know, yelled it at Denny Evdija in the middle of a game. That's true. That's he, true. He said it functionally in his personal life. And like, yes, he should absolutely be punished for doing so publicly, especially because he has to apologize and not represent his team. But, like, this wasn't necessarily a basketball-related thing. He just sort of did something that proved he was a bad person and is therefore suffering the consequences for it. That said, it reflects his, you know, importance in the community and his stance as a public figure that with lots of people watching this stream, right? Like, if he was playing with just his friends and said it, we would have never heard about it. But somebody saw it, put it on on Twitter, and sort of it, it, it... 
got repeated as something, you know, he that was represented with him. Ironically, the same thing happened during a game when he refused to kneel for the national anthem with the rest of his teammates. That's true. I mean, I feel like that that sort of makes me not want to give him much of the benefit of the doubt. It's like if, you, totally. if you're the only teammate and uh, the only player on the team and, you know, a noticeably white player on a mostly black NBA team uh, refusing to kneel for the anthem, I feel like you are sort of aware of the politics of our times and you're not uh, – just ignorantly going through the world without without a care. So, oh yeah, there's there's a Bill Burr joke about people who are upset about kneeling for the anthem, where you know Colin Kaepernick kneels for the anthem, and there's some guy out somewhere who goes, "My brother once knew a firefighter, and because <laughs> of that, I refuse to believe in this." Yeah, so I think he was already painting himself as as that sort of guy. I, look, I, I don't really know what the answer is. I don't know that he should never play again. I don't know that he shouldn't have he shouldn't have a chance. Maybe he won't play again in Miami because, you know, it's a pretty Jewish and I'm sure vocally Jewish fan base. And Oh, yeah. He, he's also, I mean, thankfully there's no fans because when they go to Brooklyn, he's going to get the shit beat out of them. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. Look, I, 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 it would be interesting to know what would happen in, in the heat of the moment of a, of a game if something similar to happen. Um, it's not exactly the same, uh, I don't think, but I think that if a white player were to use the N-word against a black player in a game, they probably would be not playing in the NBA anymore. And I'm not saying that this is the same. It wasn't a game. It wasn't directed at a Jewish player. And obviously, you know, there has been a reaction that's suitable, but it remains interesting that this is, uh, you know, there's, there's a limit on it. And I think disappointingly, the reaction has not was not swift and universal condemnation. It wasn't. There weren't well, a lot. There have been a trickle of NBA players who have now come out and made a comment about it, but not universally, and not and not, and not the most vocal, not the most vocal people coming out immediately. What I thought was very interesting, and I think this is reflective of the relative cultures, and specifically about the NBA. And then I understand they have a lot more lawyers and they have a lot more public facing, but I think the sort of ethnic, racial, religious slurs are are somewhat common in the gaming lifestyle. Yeah, that seems um, to be true. I think, yeah. and, and I think for that reason is why we saw his gaming sponsors and, you know, the leagues he plays in and the game itself immediately disavow him and condemn him much faster than anybody involved with the NBA. Did. Yeah, that, that, um, good, kudos think, to them for, for coming down hard and quickly. I mean, I think they sort of understood the reaction and, and people were sort of joking about this on Twitter when it, the the heat, the Miami heat's initial statement was like, you know, we're reviewing the video and, and it's sort of like reviewing yeah. the video. You know, there's and, not and that they much to say, review. They say we're not a litigious people. You know, I, again, all these situations are difficult. You don't know how to react necessarily. There's a first time for these things, but I, I think the reaction has been, has been okay. And I think, uh, you know, it, hopefully people are more careful about what they do. Hopefully people, I don't know. Don't use anti-Semitic slurs on on publicly available streams and things like that. And we'll see if there's any progress. As I was saying, I think I think it's a much more acute problem relative to the NBA as it is in the in the esports mm-hmm. world. At least you know you see a lot, you hear a lot about people. I I don't know if I've ever played an online game where people shoot at each other in my life. I find on MLB the Show, racial slurs seem to stay uh-huh. out of it okay. a lot. Um, but on Call of Duty, you know, there might be, it might be somewhat more commonplace. So I think the people involved in that, in the, in those communities are working a lot harder and a lot faster because it's a much more acute problem than the NBA for right now. That said, I, I think your point stands about, you know, we don't necessarily hear or what would happen if somebody, you know, uh, said the N word or 
something, as we know what happens when somebody uses an anti-gay slur or an anti-black slur, we're not quite sure of yet. So it sucks that we had to be the test case in the NBA for this. But it seems that there's somewhat of a boilerplate punishment in 2021 for such. Well, an look, event. I, I would say that the one one person we know uh, was uh, subjected to racial slurs while he was playing was Jeremy Lin. Uh, he said that yeah. you know people said many anti-Asian slurs at him when he was playing, and there wasn't much action about that. Now his heyday was more like five five eight years ago, so maybe that's when that was happening. And it was he was the first notable or not no, first notable, but the first big Asian American player who, uh, who made it big and, you know, maybe things will change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think one good thing that came out of this, we did get an open letter from Julian Edelman wide receiver. Oh my goodness. Where did he play last year? I can't remember now. Anyways, but Julian Edelman wrote an open letter to Myers Leonard, um, sort of saying he didn't think he used that word out of hate, but out of ignorance and inviting him to a Shabbat dinner down in Miami sometimes. So, you know, good for Julian Edelman, certainly embracing his role as a very, uh, you know, prominent as Jewish a athlete, a mensch. I will say, though, on the other hand, that the one thing I, I just don't care about is like a, a public uh, rehabilitation tour for Myers Leonard, like, you know, breaking ground on a on a new wing of a Holocaust museum or something like that. <laughs> uh, like, I, I, I just I don't care. I mean, I like, you know, he is uh, he can continue to play and we don't have, we can think about him as little as we've thought about him these many years. And Low uh, these many years. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I think that's I think we've covered most of the Myers Leonard. So I don't know that there's much else to say. It's it's unfortunate. I mean, it, it is interesting as an example of how quickly these things spread. I mean, certainly we heard about it within a few minutes and, and people were sort of telling us about it, wanting wanting a comment about these. Yeah, it's, it's nice. That we, I wanna, I, this is a good, good uh, opportunity to shout out to our fans and listeners that we're now looked to. When something, when a professional athlete does an anti-Semitism, we're glad you want to hear from us. Yeah. That was a busy day on Twitter. That's right. So, you know, twice, twice, two or three times a year, we will be called upon to uh, make these judgment calls and, uh, you know, demand justice be meted out quickly. So I think, I think that was our big Jewish news story this, this week, unfortunately. I had one more thing to say, which I found ironic, is that you use a anti-gay slur or an anti-Jewish slur, I'm sorry, you use an anti-Jewish slur while playing Call of Duty, what I believe to be a World War II video game in which you play as the Americans. You know, whatever uh, U.S. Army propaganda goes to the development of that game, maybe didn't work on him. Let me ask you something. You said something about being subjected to certain comments and you're playing MLB The Show. When you're playing the show, are you on voice chat with somebody else, the person you're playing against? You can be. I've never been on. I've never been on. Is the other person on voice chat sometimes just telling you, like, hey, I think think you you have to both opt in? That just sounds like really funny, but I would love to uh, hop on MLB the show and, like, and, like, do play by play for for a game. Do people do that? I would love to do that. Like a third, you have a third party doing play by play. Well, I've been trying to create an all Jewish team. It's hard and there aren't very many, but I'm trying. Well, why don't you say that for next episode? We will uh, we'll talk about Major League Baseball, which is starting in a few weeks. Uh, new season's coming. And we can talk about our all-Jewish uh, starting lineup. Yeah. I mean, baseball, the most Jewish of sports in terms of the amount of pro athletes currently. So lots of Jewish athletes to talk about in baseball. Um, I know we have lots of baseball fans out there, so we'll, we'll give a good preview of the 2021 season uh, that's going to start in a few weeks. For now, let's uh, head to our interview with Andrew Morenis. We're joined today by Andrew Marinus, uh, who is a writer, who is uh, author of a number of books, including uh, the new book, Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke, a story about the first openly gay baseball player. 
And also, uh, Games of Deception. Just want to get the full subtitle here. It's a big one, Andrew. Yeah. The true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, uh, which uh, won a award from Jewish librarians and something we want to talk to you about. Um, we'd love to talk to you a little bit about the new book, but I think it would be great to talk a little bit for our listeners about the book about the 1936 Olympics and the issues of anti-Semitism that were pervasive to those games. Um, I've really enjoyed re- reading the book and learning a lot of these stories about some of these older Jewish athletes and these stories I didn't know about. Um, one in particular I, I thought was very interesting was was about Sam Balter, who was uh, the only Jewish member or the one Jewish member of the U.S. Olympic basketball team that won gold. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on your podcast. I think you've got the best titled podcast that I've ever heard of. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> Good. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was really looking forward to talking to you guys. Um, Games of Deception was a really interesting book for me to write. You know, I'm a big basketball fan and had no idea that it was the 1936 Olympics uh, where basketball got its start in the Olympics until I was visiting uh, University of Kansas on a book tour for my first book. And I I really wanted to see Allen Fieldhouse where the Jayhawks Mm -hmm. play basketball and saw a picture of James Naismith um, with a Japanese basketball player. And they had the original rules of basketball under glass there, you know, and the tour guide said, did you know the inventor of the game was able to see it debut at the Olympics? Uh, And so that sort of set me off on the research for this book. And along the way, I learned the story of Sam Balter, who you mentioned, who was the only uh, Jewish American to win a gold medal at the 36 Olympics in Berlin. And he played for the Universal uh, Studios basketball team, which made up half of the U.S. Olympic team that year. And uh, you, you can ask more questions about that. But, well, know, I just, thought that was, that was yeah. a very fascinating uh, a part of the story that, you know, the team, half the team was the Universal Pictures, uh, you know, like the movie studio was their yeah. company team. And that was the way things were done back then. They sort of hired uh, good athletes, you know, in Joe jobs so that they could play play the game and be part of the team. And Sam Balter was one of those guys who'd been sort of a uh, you know, a high school star. And, uh, you know, there wasn't professional basketball in the same way we think about it now as a way of, of getting ahead or it's just the beginnings of that. But that's how he sort of got to be part of that universal team and, and made it to the Olympics. That's right. He had played collegiately at UCLA and the studio would hire former college basketball players to work on the movie sets, you know, really just so they would be there to be on the basketball team. And it was a way in the 1930s to promote their movies, you know, to have this basketball team traveling around uh, with Universal on their chest. And they would bring a big banner with them to the games that had the names of movie stars like Boris Karloff, you know, and um, (laughs) directors of the time of the era. Uh, Jack Pierce was the head makeup artist at the movie studio back then. And he was considered sort of the manager of the team. They didn't even Mm -hmm. really have a coach, but he, he had created the looks for Frankenstein and Hunchback of Notre Dame and would dress up the players in these character costumes before the games and they would come out and entertain the crowd. Uh, this is, this is like Mr. Burns in the, with the nuclear plant softball team. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It's the same concept. The other half of the team was from a tiny town in Kansas called McPherson, Kansas. Um, they worked for an oil refinery there. And the, what they created the first Olympic team was instead of the best players, you know, being invited to be on the team or trying out for the team, they had a national tournament. And this was in the days before March Madness. There was no, you know, major college basketball tournament at the time. And they said, whichever two teams make it to the championship game of the tournament at Madison Square Garden will combine those two teams, essentially a couple players left off, you know, to be the first U.S. Olympic basketball team. Just getting to the games, 
was itself a, a bit of a challenge. And, and I knew a little bit about the Berlin Olympics as a sort of, um, you know, way for Nazi Germany to show itself off the world. But I didn't realize how much opposition there had been domestically in the United States and other countries about a potential boycott, in large part because, you know, of anti-Semitism in, in Nazi Germany reports about that, the, the fact that uh, there weren't going to be Jewish athletes competing for Germany at the time. And uh, I, I really I just thought that was a very interesting part of the story. Ultimately, everybody did go and, uh, you know, Jesse Owens and other black athletes joined the Amer- or were big part of the American team and part of what made that Olympics so historic in the end. Yes, I was surprised, too. Like you said, I hadn't realized the extent of the boycott effort uh, in the United States and in other countries. You know, I've got a picture in the book of tens of thousands of people marching through the streets of New York, uh, protesting the idea of going to those Olympics. I visited the American Jewish archives uh, in Cincinnati as I was researching this book to listen to a sermon by uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise uh, about two years prior to the Olympics, you know, where he's making the case why we should not go to these games. Sam Balter, you know, who you mentioned, he had a big decision to make whether he was going to participate in the Olympics or not after he earned the right to go there. And I thought it was interesting. You know, he decided obviously to go and he, he listened to a lot of people talked to a lot of Jewish leaders to get their thoughts about whether, you know, it was a good idea to go or not. And, and he, till his dying day, even it, with the benefit of hindsight and knowing what happened in the Holocaust and World War II, said he was still, you know, proud that he had gone. As a young man and deciding to go, he thought the best way that he could stand up to Hitler and to these notions of Aryan supremacy, you know, was to go there and perform well and win a gold medal. And that, you know, that would show uh, the fallacy of those arguments. And Jesse Owens felt the same way. Right. He was getting a lot of pressure from black leaders not to go. Uh, but they both went, they both performed well, won gold medals. And to some degree, you know, especially in Jesse Owens case are, are celebrated um, for what they did. However, you know, you can't really say that by going and competing that they changed the course of history <laughs> in any way for the better or were necessarily treated better even in their own country when they came back. I find it very interesting to consider the story of Helen Meyer in the same Olympics at the same, uh, you know, at the same time as she was actually, I mean, some of our listeners might know this and I'm sure you know this, but she was, you know, I guess, deconsecrated from Germany and was living in exile in the United States when she went back to compete for Germany in the 36 Olympics. Right. uh, As a Jewish athlete. As a Jewish athlete and was used sort of to further the propaganda that you guys have been talking about. That was Mm -hmm. the whole purpose of why Hitler was excited to host the Olympics. I mean, Germany had been awarded the Olympics prior to him coming right. into power. And initially he you know, wasn't in favor of this sort of international event taking place in his country, but his propaganda ministers convinced him it would be good propaganda, not only to the world and to try to fool the world into thinking that everything was fine there, but really to um, make their own case with German citizens, you know, and to show mm-hmm. you know, that, that we're essentially endorsed by the world who's coming here for the Olympics. They wouldn't be coming, you know, if, if we weren't popular, uh, right. if we weren't good. And so, you know, inviting Meyer back to compete for Germany, um, especially because she, you know, uh, had the Jewish background was really important to them. Um, and there's pictures of her, famous pictures of her with, you know, raising her arm in the Hitler salute Absolutely. Uh, at those Olympics. It's really spooky uh, to see. Hmm. Which she later said was, I mean, I think this is debated, but what she, she later said was to spare her family arrest. Right. was the reason why she went, you know? Right. So you, yeah, it's easy to sit here in 2021 and condemn her for going, but you don't know exactly what was happening uh, in her life. I also wrote about Gretel Bergman, uh, the Jewish uh, high jumper 
who, you know, was in Germany for part of the lead up to the Olympics, but then was uh, living in London um, and thought she had a compete, a chance to really try out a legit chance to try out for the German Olympic team and wanted to. Yeah. Um, uh, and then was cut from the team at the very last minute after the United States had already set sail uh, for Germany after it would be too late um, to boycott the games. And, and you so mean she- literally set sail? And yeah, they're on the boat, right? Yeah, yeah they didn't fly. <laughs> they took the SS Manhattan from New York Harbor. Uh, and it wasn't until they're out in the Atlantic Ocean that it was, you know, that Gret Bergman was re- uh, moved from the team and it was realized that it was all a farce. She never had a chance to make it in the first place. And it does seem likely that she would have meddled, but she she was setting uh, records or, you know, or hitting jumps that were within the contention, certainly. Absolutely. She deserved to be on the team. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to see, you know, we're 80 plus years uh, since then. And, you know, these same issues continue to come up every Olympics or certainly at least every Olympics that's held in uh, parts of the world that don't necessarily have human rights uh, or or respect for human rights in the way that we want in the West or democratic rights. I I don't know how much press has gotten in the States so far, but in Canada, there's been more of a a organized movement around uh, around boycotting the Beijing 2022 Winter Games. And it seems unlikely that anything's going to happen. But, you know, here we are all these years later and people are saying the same thing about, you know, this is just going to be a propaganda opportunity for for the CCP or or, who, or for Russia when Sochi was hosting the games. I've it's noticed, an and, and it might, and this might just be a hunch, but I've noticed that countries with bad human rights records tend to get awarded the Olympics a little more than, yeah. you know, yeah. regularly. There might be some skullduggery going on with that IOC. Just a hunch. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I mean, the links between fascism and the Olympic movement have been there uh, for a hundred years. And, um, you know, 1932 Olympics had been held in Los Angeles at a time when racial segregation in the United States, uh, anti-Semitism in the United States, a massive deportation of Mexican-American citizens, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the months leading up to those Olympics. Sure. I'm, I'm sure there's countries, you know, when L.A. hosts the Olympics here in a couple of years, uh, thank God Trump's not president anymore. But, um, you know, <laughs> you could make the same arguments about why they would want to come participate in an American Olympics if it was going to be used for uh, Trump's propaganda purposes. Sure. Well, there's always, I mean, we're getting a little sidetracked talking about Olympic history here, which I'm, I'm super into, but we're, there's always a couple of countries that boycott the Olympics without us knowing, you know, like there'll be <laughs> right. an Olympics. I'm, I'm serious. There'll be an Olympics yeah. in, in South Korea that, you know, because of some political disagreement, you know, uh, just picking a country, Estonia will decide, you know, we're not going to participate. Nobody really notices. But when it comes to a country like China or the United States, it becomes a much larger political issue, especially, you know, in, in Canada, at least where we all are. There's a, a lot of sort of political intrigue right now with the ethics of China. I mean, our our parliament, for example, just sort of condemned the Chinese government. Who knows what it means? But there is official statements going on about issues in the world right now. There is, uh, Andrew, there is another um, important Jewish story in, in the book that I that I think we should talk about as well. And that's the uh, the benching of the two American runners in the in the four by 100 meter finals. Uh, that was Mar- Marty Glickman and, and Sam Stoller, who, who were benched in in part. This is what allowed Jesse Owens to get his fourth gold medal. But it was it was done to to appease Hitler at the time. Yeah, that's what uh, a lot of people believe that that's exactly the reason why they were scheduled to run in this relay. They had been practicing for it. They had earned the right to do it. The last minute 
the American coaches changed the lineup for the relay. Uh, Jesse Owens is one of the runners who was inserted, who had already won plenty of medals. He, he even said he didn't need to win another. Right. right. Um, you know, it kind of helps the case of the coaches to deny that there was any anti-Semitism to it to say, well, we put Jesse Owens in, you know, like he kind of was the fastest man on earth. So as a coaching decision, it's hard to question that, but Stollerhead and Glickman had earned the right to be there. They're pulled at the last minute, especially Marty Glickman, you know, always believed that it was anti-Semitism at play. Sam Stoller was a little um, less certain of that. He thought, you know, there was favoritism involved mm-hmm. because the um, the assistant coach for the track team had a, a, one of his runners that he put in in his place too. So regardless of the reason, it was unfair. And I, I think it was very likely was that it was anti-Semitism at play. Avery Brundage, who's the American Olympic Committee president at that time, future IOC president, incredible anti-Semite. Uh, oh yeah, not a good guy. No, not, not a good guy. I went to his archives at the University of Illinois and the folders that I pulled out were just overflowing with anti-Semitic newsletters that he was subscribing to, letters that were signed to him, Heil Brundage, you know, and he would write complimentary letters back to these people. I was shocked to see that he was writing letters to actual Nazis, asking them to send favorable coverage, quote unquote, favorable coverage of their regime to American newspapers to try to sway public opinion uh, in the United States so that we wouldn't boycott those games. Um, you know, and, and he was the, obviously the main proponent of participating and would say things like, you know, this is about sports, not politics. Well, meanwhile, and you know, that we shouldn't interfere in the politics of another country. Meanwhile, he's asking the Nazis to interfere in, in public discourse in his own country. Right. Hypocrite. I was going to say it with Brundage specifically, it came to a head at the 72 Olympics, of course. Um, given that he was, you know, he's notably the one who made the decision not to cancel any future events or the games after the murder of the 11 Jewish athletes. Absolutely. The next time the Olympics are back in Germany. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, in his Olympic history goes back to when he ran against Jim Thorpe in Stockholm, yeah. you know, and his ideas of, uh, amateurism, which were such rooted in, you know, the aristocracy and the idea, if you had to earn money by your athletic abilities that there was something you know uh, wrong with that but you know what a significant figure in the olympic movement for the entire 20th century you know it, it's interesting thinking about all this through line between you know jim thorpe who is uh you know uh, indigenous american who is incredibly considered one of the greatest athletes of all time uh through the 36 olympics and and you know sports in the time of nazism 72 in munich and the murder of the israeli athletes um and your, your newest book, to segue to that, uh, the story of Glenn Burke, the first openly gay Jew, uh, sorry, the first openly gay professional athlete. Jewish, Jew. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there, I think the through line through all of it is that politics and sports have always been intertwined and, and will continue to be the idea of, you know, I, you know, there's been this adage of like stick to sports that's been right. hurled at people. And it's sort of like, wh- when were we ever sticking to sports? This is always it's always been sort of part and parcel of, of the whole thing. Oh, totally. I I 100% agree with you. That's why I'm interested in writing these books, Um, whether you call it uh, politics or social justice or, you know, issues of of race or anti-Semitism or fascism. I think that's what makes these stories especially interesting, you know, and sports just happens to be the venue where you can tell these stories. But um, exactly, sports and politics have always uh, marched hand in hand. The Olympics is the very the clearest example of that, you know, the way that countries uh, bid on these games, the way they use them for propaganda purposes, the way the athletes compete, not individually, you know, but as nations 
Um, so it's inescapable. And I think when people say that, you know, you need to keep these separate, what they're really saying is that there, there's only a certain brand of politics that they feel is appropriate uh, to be linked to sports, um, which is sort of that traditional, maybe jingoistic type of, of politics that doesn't want to address uh, issues, those issues, those serious issues we've talked about. And that's a political statement in and of itself, you know, to not talk about those things, not change those things. Definitely. A lot of well, leagues well are perfectly happy to have uh, a, a F-16 fly straight over exactly. the, uh, the stadium and say, that's not politics, that's America. Right, um, right. You know, or, you know, uh, Major League Baseball excluding black players until Jackie <laughs> Robinson came along. That was a political decision. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I would think that, um, you know, the treatment of gay athletes, certainly in the professional ranks or the, the professional ranks in North America, um, continues to be one of the main, I don't know if I would call it a civil rights issue necessarily, but one of the ongoing uh, issues that hasn't been resolved. And, and you know, you, you discuss in the book that, you know, it's sort of amazing that Glenn Burke was this uh, openly gay athlete in the 1970s. And they're really, aside from a few cases there really hasn't been a, a big openly gay athlete in north america you know there's uh jason collins a few years ago who comes out at, towards the end of his career and plays a few games afterwards uh michael sam who's drafted into the nfl but uh doesn't play in a regular season game and you know the the discourse around michael sam a few years ago was like oh it's gonna be a distraction in the locker room mm -hmm. and i think understandably that that's been or that's been the rhetoric and that's probably a large part of what's keeping people in the closet who are pro athletes um from, from sort of expressing themselves and, and, and breaking down that, that sort of last barrier in, in pro sports. Yeah, I agree. Especially when you're talking about men's sports, you know, I think in, mm. in women's sports, you've seen more examples of, you know, out lesbian uh, athletes in soccer absolutely. or basketball. Right. Um, but men's sports, absolutely. And I think Glenn Burke would be disappointed if he knew that that was the case and on his deathbed. He said he hoped that his experience would make it easier for people in the future. Um, I love that you brought up the idea of Michael Sam being a distraction, you know, and that's often the line that is used uh, by maybe a general manager, right. Or owner, or even the media that having a gay player an, an openly gay player would be a distraction. So I try to point out just the absurdity of that in my book on Glenn by, by writing about all the distractions that were surrounding <laughs> the Dodgers and the Oakland A's, the two teams that Glenn Burke played for. So with the Dodgers, Tommy Lasorda was inviting Frank Sinatra and Don Rickles, you know, into the clubhouse right. every day. He has Don Rickles uh, telling jokes, uh, you know, busting on his players minutes before a, a playoff game. Uh, when Glenn Burke is with the Oakland A's, MC Hammer is the team vice president as a, teen, <laughs> as a teenage kid. You know, Charlie Finley's paying this teenager and calls him the VP. Um, Finley famously had a mechanical rabbit that would deliver the baseballs to the umpires. <laughs> uh, so these are managers, owners that are introducing crazy distractions to their teams. Meanwhile, Glenn Burke was the most popular player on the team amongst his teammates. You know, Dusty Baker. <laughs> Davey Lopes said that, you know, he was funny. He kept the atmosphere light, uh, played a lot of music. They loved having him around. And the sports writers who were covering the Dodgers when Glenn was traded to Oakland uh, because the general manager learned that he was gay, said that there were Steve Garvey and Don Sutton were sitting at their lockers crying, right. you know, about this fourth outfielder getting traded, you know. And so far from a distraction, he was, you know, the most popular person in that clubhouse. Well, I think one of the stories we are stories, one of the theories we continually hear about uh, closeted gay athletes is that the distraction won't come from inside the team. 
you know, when people argue that it will be a distraction, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's safe to say that there are many gay athletes, male athletes, I should say, in North American sports who are out to their friends and teammates, but not to the public. And that, you know, inside the locker room is not necessarily where the problem lies. Yeah, I think some people would totally uh, agree with that. Others would say, you know, the locker room still isn't the most supportive place, probably. I'm sure a, it's a not athlete. great. So, yeah, right. I think it depends on, you know, the leadership of the team. Like Dusty Baker was the leader in many ways of that team. If Dusty said Glenn was OK, I don't think anybody was going to mess with them. Uh, maybe it depends who the manager is, the general manager, the owner, what city you're playing in. Um, and, and talking to Billy Bean, you know, who was the second uh openly gay player to come out, you know, after his playing days, not the mm-hmm, GM right. of the Oakland A's, but the other Billy Bean who works for major league baseball. Now he said the thing to keep in mind also is the financial risk that these uh, players have to calculate. You know, they, if they're only going to be a professional athlete at the highest <laughs> level for four or five years, if they're lucky, you know, um, why risk that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. why risk it? Maybe it's safer just to wait five years, make an announcement when you're retired, if, if you care to do so. And so I think you have to take that into consideration also. On a, on a lighter note, I think it's it's worth pointing out as well, the um, not exactly a coincidence, but the sort of amazing thing that Glenn Burke, this sort of accidentally groundbreaking, groundbreaking player, also helped invent the high five and publicize the high five. And it's just sort of, it, it, it's like, it, you wouldn't believe that if they wrote it in a movie like that. It's amazing. I think, I, I guess for someone... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 for some of my age to even think that the high five didn't, that there was a time before the high five, that there's, you know, a, a time, I don't even know how people celebrated things, but now it's like, you know, it's so <laughs> commonplace, but he and Dusty Baker were the sort of the people who, who made it a thing publicly. And it's, yeah. it's an amazing part of the story. It's crazy. You know, and it just goes to show like what we lose when you stifle people uh, just because they happen to be different. Like here was such mm. a creative person that created a move that everybody in the whole world knows what it is now, you know, but the story is that, in the 1977 season heading into the last month of the season, the Dodgers already had three players who had hit 30 or more home runs. Dusty Baker was stuck on 29 and he's stuck on it until the last game of the season. And J.R. Richard is pitching for the Astros. He's throwing hundred miles an hour, you know, and, and Baker doesn't homer his first two at bats, but he does in his third and, and Glenn Burke is on deck. The crowd's going crazy. They know the Dodgers have set this record with four players with 30 home runs. And Glenn was essentially lifted off his feet by the the exuberance of the crowd. And he raises his arm and Dusty Baker slapped it. And the Dodgers coined the term high five. And it's interesting. They, you know, they were writing in their game programs, like what a high five is, you know, and when you should do it. It's interesting to see the public kind of educated on this thing that we just take for granted now. Um, And, you know, who knows, somebody in Toronto might have high-fived someone in 1932 or something, but they didn't call it a high-five and there was nobody there watching. Uh, So this is considered the first high-five in history. Now, I'm I'm curious if we were prevented, you know, through other sorts of um, discriminations, if we were prevented from a professional athlete inventing down low too slow. (laughs) (laughs) It's very likely. Who knows? That's probably the case, Gabe. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I think, Andrew, that's a a good place. It's a high note to end it on, uh, a high five note to end it on. Uh, Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been a great great time great interview did you want to, do you want to give a plug for the for the book yeah uh, where tell us about the them? book yeah all right so games of deception is that first book we were talking about the story of the 36 olympics and basketball debuting there my new book singled out the biography of glenn burke that we were just talking about and i'm working on a book now that involves canada um oh, it's the oh, story of the first 
uh, U.S. women's Olympic basketball team, which played at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Um, oh, wow. And so I've uh, completed the research on that. I talked to the Canadian women's coach from that team, Brian Haney, and also um, uh, a few of the players from the Canadian women's team also. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting started writing that one. I've got all my research done. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Hopefully I, you don't have to spend any time researching in an Olympic stadium. You know, a piece of concrete might fall on your head. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was in... Uh, we took a family trip to Canada two summers ago, went to you know Toronto and Niagara Falls where you guys are and also um, to Montreal. And I visited that stadium for the first time. Never got to see an Expos game there, um, but it, it was fun to see it. I remember that's the first Olympics I remember. I'm old enough. I was six years old in the 76 Olympics. So to see that venue was, was cool for me. There's an interesting story about the basketball team that the, the captain of the gold medal winning Russian team uh, was uh, Tatiana Ovechkina. Who was known as the, or is now the mom of Alex Ovechkin? Yeah, absolutely. NHL star. Yeah, um, she was on that team. I've got someone uh, in um, Latvia who is trying to set up an interview with her. Oh, um, that's awesome. He, he speaks Russian, so he'll do it for me. But you know, I'd love to get her thoughts about those Olympics. They also had a woman uh, named Semenova who was over seven feet tall and, and dominated those Olympics. Wow. You know what? I this is obviously. Some, there's a eugenics portion at play here, I think, <laughs> with a seven foot tall basketball player and, you know, Alex Ovechkin's parents. Father's also a professional athlete. Just thinking about how they're, you know, the Russian government used to create athletes to participate in these Olympic Games. Absolutely. You know, hand selected when they were kids to, to train for these moments. Absolutely. I guess we'll have to read that that book when it comes out <laughs> and, and learn more about, about this. It sounds very fascinating. Uh, again, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was fun. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much to Andrew Moranis for joining us. Uh, as we mentioned, Games of Deception and uh, Singled Out, both available wherever you get your books. Um, Gabe, before we go, I want to shout out a, a life event for, for your family. Uh, both your parents got vaccinated. Yeah, it's very exciting. By the time this airs, both my parents and my in-laws will have vaccinated. That's great. Just in time for my child to be born. Yeah. Um, Big for things the going Shikahianu on. Of the of the child. Dude, did, I know the, the rabbis were debating it. Did they decide that you should Shikahianu when you get vaccinated? Oh, I have no idea. That's that a good debate question. Was was making its way around the internet, or the Jewish corners of the internet over the last little while. Mike, maybe uh, kick that one over to Bonjour Chai and uh, see if they have an opinion on it. My parents should be vaccinated tomorrow, so that's great. Shout out to them. Everyone who's listening, go get vaccinated whenever you can. Um, yes. Go get it's your true. parents We're vaccinated whenever they can. To promote uh, uh, Big Pharma. Yeah, that's right. My, my wife's employers, so good. <laughs> All it of works it. out. Not one of the vaccine companies, but uh, I don't have a personal stake in them. But uh, yeah. Yeah, we are not affiliated with any vaccine, with any we're of just, the pharmaceutical companies offering the vaccine. We're Maybe just other pro pharmaceutical vax. companies. Yeah, we're just but pro, we are, we pro are vax. pro-vaccine. Yeah. That's that's true. I Do we know, I mean, this is also something for Bonjour Chai, but I, I want to leave our, our listeners with it. Do we know if there is like a Jewish anti-vax movement? Like I know there's a lot of like evangelical Christians and the QAnons who, who tend to be more anti-vax, but I don't know about if there's like a Jewish one that isn't, you know, like a Satmar, Yol, Teitelbaum type group. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I think they're just called the uh, ultra-Orthodox. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh Save, boy. I'll tell you something. Do not post that in the CJN lounge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, why don't we leave it there on that uh, slightly anti-Haredi note? Um, 
until next time, you can follow us at, Men- at the Mentformers on Twitter. Catch up with us on the CJN Lounge. Uh, if anything about Jews and sports you hear about, feel free to sh- throw it our way, and we'll talk about the next show. And be back in a couple weeks with the baseball preview.